quick time. I had to end a very meaningful conversation. <laughs> well, nice to see you. Hey, your brother-in-law is here, Daniel. Did you see that? I married Daniel's sister to this guy, really good guy, um, probably six and a half years ago. He's a Marine, and but I married them anyway, and I just went slow. Yeah, I was in the Army. And so uh, they're heading out to their next assignment, which is uh, in uh, 29 Palms in California. What do you say, Rex? Yeah. Okay. So, so Rex was not in the military. He was in the Air Force. And so, come on, buddy. Let's go. So here's the deal, folks. This is the third time you get a little crazy. You do this three times think you're going to be normal. Oh, for crying out loud. You people are rowdier than, than I. Hey. See Calvin right there? So, Calvin, I was told you were baptized today. I missed it. I missed the baptism. But I'm also told today's your birthday. Is that true? Anybody else having a birthday today? Just Calvin? Let's sing. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Calvin. Happy birthday to you. Amen. <laughs> and that pretty lady sitting next to him is Dolores. And uh, I'm trying to talk him out of getting married. And they're, they're, they're planning it. And, no, I'm just kidding. She's a doll, just a sweetie. But now you're with an older man, apparently. <laughs> oh, no! Oh, no! Premarital counseling 101. Okay. Man, it's going to be interesting. And wiser. <laughs> Folks, we are in Second Samuel chapter 22 today. I'll just tell you at the outset, we can't treat it the way we normally do because there's a lot in it. Can't get it all done verse by verse. So I'm going to highlight some of it. Now, I think you'll get the thrust of it, and I apologize to you. You can read it more clearly on your own, but I'll tell you what's going on. It's at the end of David's life. He has served very effectively as a military man, king, leader of Israel, all the rest. And uh, it's time for him to reflect on his life because there may not be that much more left of it. He can't go out to war anymore. We saw that in the last chapter with the troops. He can't face giant-sized challenges the way he did with Goliath. Now, to his credit, he produced others who could. And they lovingly told him, you got to stay back. You can't go out with us. And that was a tough message. You know, whenever any of us have to hear this, that you made a great contribution, but now it's time to step away, that's a tough one. Anyway, David heard it and received it. And now he, we get the impression he's reflecting on his life. He's older. And older people, you forgive me here because there's some of you in here, and I suppose I'm getting in that category. 
uh, have a tendency sometimes to get real cynical at the end of their life, embittered, even Christian old people. This chapter has told me, I don't want to do that. Don't do that. Let's finish well. We're going to die. Let's die right. Isn't that a pleasant message to give you? I mean, Jesus is with us every step in every phase of our life, even the last one. David reflects on it, and he's kind of uh, exhibit A about whether God is good and faithful. He's not a young guy. He's not new to the faith. Man, there have been decades of uh, struggles, ups and downs, and he comes to some conclusions about God which are instructive to us. So that's kind of what this is about. And before we take a look at, at it, It's almost identical to what David wrote in Psalm 18. Almost identical, but for a few words. How do you explain that? Well, a good song ought to be sung more than once. That's how you explain it. He wrote it and sang it in Psalm 18. He's singing it again here in 2 Samuel 22. The lyrics are great. And so he's singing it again. So here we go, verse 1. David spoke the words of this song. You know what amazes me? This is a tough, military, fighting man, but he had an artistic side, very uh, musical. He wrote a good deal of the ancient songbook of Israel, which we call the Psalms. This is a song written by David. We'll, we'll see it in just a second. Anyway, he spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. But I thought Saul was his enemy. Yeah, he was, but he was also kin. And David at the end showed respect to the fact that God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. He was not a good king. Nonetheless, God chose him. And David chose respect and kind of distinguishes Saul from his enemies. And as Saul ferociously and fiercely assaulted David no less than any of his enemies, I mean, he threw spears at him charged after him with thousands of troops down to the Dead Sea area to smoke David out of one of the caves in which he was hiding. He could clearly be classed as one of David's enemies, but I notice how gracious David is towards the end. There is enemies, and there's Saul. Saul is one of his own. Though he turned against David, still he was one of his own. And so it says in verse 2, He said, David said, the Lord, here's the song, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. There's a place in Israel called Masada. Has anyone here ever been to that place? Could you raise your hand? Look at that number of people. So this will be meaningful to you and, and hopefully to everybody. The Hebrew word for the word fortress is the word Masada. Therefore, David is in effect saying here, The Lord is my rock and my Masada. Why does he say that? Masada is a natural feature along the shores of the Dead Sea. It's a dry and barren area. And all of a sudden, what looms large from ground level is this natural rock outcropping Even the best of rock climbers would have a hard time getting up. It's a very defendable place. And so Herod saw it and decided to build a palace on it. Herod was a master builder and also a nutcase. 
They say there's a fine line between genius and insanity, and that dude crossed it. But he was a master builder, so he built on Masada a three-tiered palace. For those of you who've been there, you probably remember the three levels that Herod used to build his fortress. I bring this up because undoubtedly David knew of Masada. Not when Herod was there earlier on, but when David says, the Lord is my Masada, I think he's referencing it. And he is essentially saying, there are many potential safe places for you to run to, many strongholds and fortresses in the form of people, in the form of stuff, things to give you a temporary lift, a temporary sense of gratification, whatever it is. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be pornography, it could be compulsive overeating, it could be compulsive spending, it could be false religions, it could be philosophies. Of, I mean, whatever it is, the world is filled with masadas. But David said, no, no. At the end of my life, he said, this is my conclusion. I've tried all that stuff, but the Lord is my masada. In so doing, he's ruling out all others. Now, I want to take note of this because if I ever have doubts about the realness of Jesus and about how he truly is Savior and sanctuary, I want to listen to the reflections of an older man towards the end of his life. And David says, no, 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 don't doubt for one minute. Jesus is the only way. The Lord is my Masada. He goes on to say, and my deliverer, verse 3, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I know it's time change day and we're a little groggy and all that. Still, I want to give you a little counting exercise if you don't mind. Would you look back at verse 2 and 3 and simply count up the number of times you see the two-letter word, my, repeated. That's all. Take a look. How many times you see that word repeated in verses 2 and 3? What did you get? Nine? Ten? Nine or ten? Something like that? Yeah, that's the way it is. Depending on your translation, it's nine or ten. Listen, there's no fat in the Bible. All Scripture is inspired by God. So the repetition of that word nine times or ten in two verses ought to get our attention. David is declaring something. He's saying, I am one who doesn't just know of God. I know God. The word my is a personal, possessive pronoun. That's what it is. David is saying, I possess a relationship with the otherwise unapproachable God, and he possesses me. I have a connection to him that others do not have. He is my God. Now, I, 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 I might sing his praises corporately, but the essence of my life, says David, is my my God relationship, not us God. My, my God, I, I have him personally. And I think David is essentially saying, 
This is the most important relationship of all my life. As I near the end of my life, I want to tell you the conclusion I have come to. I can do without everything and everybody, but my my God relationship, I I I will I will not give up. I I cannot forfeit that. My, in using the word my, David is distinguishing the faith of Christians from the faith perspective of every other religious group on planet earth. Uh, There is no religion that has a my God concept to it. None. No ism has a my God. Uh, There there isn't that, I'll use my own background, Judaism. In the synagogue, uh, you don't do personal prayers. Look, on the way here early this morning, I I was in my car. No special vestments or clerical garb. Just this thing. Because um, it covers up the love handles. I like this. <laughs> bigger sweaters. So anyway. And I was praying. And it, it wasn't big, lofty, sanctified stuff. It was, man, Lord, it is foggy. And I'm tired. I can hardly see where I'm going. Could you please help me to get to that place? It was just, you know, nothing too earth-shattering. There I was, just talking to God about a personal thing. Because I have a my God relation that doesn't exist in Judaism. Listen, I was a little kid. I grew up in New York. And while we were visiting my grandparents, they lived in one of these New York apartment things, you know, that go for miles. Well, we were outside, me and the kids, and we were playing. In, in New York on the streets, there are no fields so we used to have a little ball. It's a pink ball, we call it. And you get it, and you throw it against the stoop steps leading up to an apartment. You throw it. And you have fielders out here. And then there's a pitcher. But you're also up to bat. You fling that deal. You try to get the edge. Because if you get the edge, it'll fly like this. And if it goes over the fielder's head, that's a home run. If it bounces two times, that's a double before the fielder gets it. That's what you do. You've got to improvise. So while we're not stealing hubcaps, which was also a sport, that's what we did. So I'm hanging out there. I'm just a kid. There was a synagogue right next door to this building. It was Saturday, Shabbat. The rabbi comes out of the synagogue. This is not a good thing. And he says to me, you, younger. Younger is not a complimentary thing. It means young, young whippersnapper kind of a deal. He said, have you had a bar mitzvah? When a Jewish kid is 13, it's kind of a rite of passage. You have a ceremony and essentially means you're now accountable to God. Your parents are not going to make any excuses for you. That kind of deal. So I said, yeah, Rabbi, I had a bar mitzvah. He said, come into the synagogue because we only have nine men. We need a tenth to start our service. Because Judaism says you need a quorum of ten. It's called a minion of 10 men over the age of 13 in order you could appro- for you to approach God. What? No, my God concept. If you're a believer and have come uh, through Jesus, the mediator, you could pray to him about anything at any time. I don't need nine other, other guys. You. So the, the in religion, this... What David is so casually speaking about here, uh, what David had come to value and experience doesn't exist in religion. You do not have a my God concept in Islam. 
Look, I don't want to offend it. I just want to speak the truth here. You do not approach Allah the way you can approach Almighty God through Jesus. You keep your distance from Allah. You show respect. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there isn't the my God concept. And I can go on and on. I got too specific in the last class, and I stepped on just about everybody's toes. I don't mean to do that. But look, all religions have their distinctives, but the one thing all religions have in common is the absence of the my God concept. You cannot have a personal relationship with your maker until you come to your maker through a personal savior. So this my God concept of David is just that. In fact, David essentially is saying, because I have this personal access to and relationship with God, I can do what he says in verse 4. I call upon the Lord. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You cannot approach almighty God, uh, unapproachably holy God, if you don't have a my re- God relationship with him. Now, people think that, you know, and they say stuff, like, I'm praying to God, I'm praying to God. You're praying to what God? You have nothing to do with God. You don't know this God. This is just words up in the air. In fact, the Bible says God does not it says our sins have separated us from God, so he doesn't hear our prayer. If our sins are not atoned for, <laughs> you cannot access God the way David did because of verse 2 and 3. Verse 4 is true. David took advantage of it. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and here's the outcome. I'm saved from my enemies. So David came to certain conclusions. And one is this. I see a connection, said David, between my personal relationship and my access to the throne of grace. Two, I see a connection between my desperation and God's deliverance from it. That's what David concluded. I call upon him and he saves me from my enemies. I'm desperate. But because I have a my God relationship, when I express my desperation to him, what I have found is that I've been delivered. Now, this is what an elderly man is saying at the end of his life. Now, if it's just some young kid and he's just trying to on the Christian life for size, mm, he can't really be eyewitness number one to me about, is God going to be faithful to you through the throes of your life? But David, I got to listen to. At the end of his life, who's a guy who's had his struggles, we know about this. At the end of his life, his conclusion is, oh. I have a personal relationship with God on the basis of which I can call upon him. And when I call upon him, I have found deliverance from my enemies. Now, David, you can't say to David, yeah, but Dave, you, your life was easy. Smooth sailing. You don't know what I've gone through. What? This is David. He had a rough life, tough times, some due to his own sin, Uh, other circumstances due to the sin of others. In fact, here's a description of just how tough his life was. Verse 5, the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Don't you like the way he writes? Boy, this guy's a great lyricist. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. Snares of death confronted me. Is he exaggerating? No. He had a son named Absalom who tried to kill him. He had a king named Saul who tried to kill him. He's not joking here. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry for help came into his ears. Let me read to you the verb, the verbiage, what the verbs sound like in Hebrew. I mean, not 
the Hebrew verbs sound like this if we translate it into English. I kept calling. I kept crying out to God. My cry for help kept coming before him. In other words, it was ongoing action. It wasn't, you know, I'll give God a shot. I'll utter some token prayer. If he comes through for me, cool. If he doesn't, I'll move on. No, David said, I'm in for the long haul. I have no other Masada. I have no other stronghold, no fortress. Where am I going to go? You are my God. And so his persistent prayer is what characterized his life. Someone said divine power is waiting to be triggered by persistent prayer. That's what David, that's what David did. And David knew God heard his distress signals. And if God heard, I think David had the notion that God would answer. So let's talk about answered prayer. You may be feeling all this stuff looks good in the Bible, and that may be David's circumstance, but not mine, because I pray for certain things, and I don't got it. God's not answering my prayers. I don't think that's it. If you're God's kid... If you're a son or daughter of God, you have a my God relationship. It is a given. God hears his kids. I mean, you hear yours. Let's give God a little more credit than we deserve. Of course he hears. And David assumed if God hears, that's the equivalent of God answering. He doesn't just hear academically or disinterestedly. If you utter a cry of desperation, God hears and answers. So how do you explain unanswered prayer? My explanation is that we are misinterpreting it. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. It's just that God's answers are different than what we expected. Why is that? Well, because I know and you know what we want. and That's the nature of our prayer. But the Father loves us so much that sometimes, though he hears what we desperately want, he says, I have something better because I know what you desperately need. Therefore, I'm going to choose to withhold from you that which you want in order to give you that which I know you need. Now, I don't get that. I don't really even like that, but too bad. I don't even understand that. I complained to God. But David, at the end of his life, concluded, don't complain. God knows what he's doing. Now, why would God withhold from his son or daughter what we so desperately want? Well, Why would you, as a loving parent, withhold from your kid or grandkid a candy bar five minutes before dinner? There's that candy bar. You just picked it up at Walmart, and you told your child or grandchild, that's yours later today. Well, there it is, sitting right on the counter in the kitchen, and your child or grandchild wants it. And you say no. Now, all that kid can think of is, How do you tell me you love me and withhold from me what I so desperately want? Well, there's not a parent on the face of the earth that takes the time. That kid's four years old. There's not a parent on the face of the earth who takes time to explain principles of nutrition. You're not holding up the broccoli and telling them this is better for you than the candy bar. I'll tell you what you're doing. When that kid says, why can't I have the candy bar? I'll tell you what you're doing. You say, because I told you so. You do it. And by the way, that's what the father says to us. And in saying that, you know what you're saying to your child? And you know what God is saying to us? I want you to trust me without an explanation. Why? The reason why God withholds explanations is that we couldn't receive it, even if he chose to give it. 
How does a little kid understand principles of nutrition? He doesn't get all that. So you expect the child to believe that you have his best interests at heart. Now, why in the world would the child expect that? Because you are proving yourself to your child to be trustworthy over time. You're providing, you're protecting, you're hugging, you're loving, you're clothing, you're feeding, all the rest. In fact, that child who sometimes resists your authority would be terrified if lost at the mall, lost sight of dad or mom. That child knows that you can be trusted. Trust is being engendered through time. And as the child grows, that child will trust you in theory all the more. That's the Christian life. We're introduced to the Father through Jesus, the Son. We don't trust him all that much. We trust him for our salvation. We believe he sent his only begotten Son. That's great. That's a starting point. Then what ensues is the growth process as a Christian, during which time God shows us we can trust him more. How does he do that? Well, through the circumstances of life, where we see his loving hand of provision and sustenance, And then we come to the point, he expects us to come to the point where we trust his statutes, ordinances, rules, and regulations, even without a full and formal explanation thereof. He just expects us to trust him. And so that's why oftentimes we don't get the specific answer to prayer, but we never get an unanswered prayer. It's just the Father saying, if I withhold anything from you, even that thing which you think you must have, it's only because I have something better in mind. Now, here's something else about prayer. We are praying to an eternal being for something temporal. I must tell you, God places little value on temporal stuff. We place intense value on temporal stuff. Why? Because that's all we know. Time here. In fact, we talk about eternity all the time, but none of us have any idea what that means. It's just an abstract concept. Timelessness. Listen, what's today? Today's Sunday, right? So uh, yesterday was Saturday. Can you get yourself back to yesterday? No. Tomorrow's what, Monday? Can you get yourself into Monday? Well, see, we're trapped, folks. You and I are trapped. We're stuck in time. Let me ask you this question. You're in here now. Can you be in here and in the worship center at the same time? You are not only stuck in time. You are stuck in space. You can only be in this space. That's it. You are stuck in time and space. We are woefully bounded by those two. We are limited. Do you know God is not confined to time and space? That's, when we talk about God being transcendent, it means he is greater than over and above time and space. He's an eternal being. He has no beginning or time doesn't exist for God. Therefore, a timeless deity is perfectly willing for us to do without certain temporal things for our eternal gain. Now, I must tell you, that doesn't make much sense to me because I have never been into eternity yet. I'm just in Sunday. I don't know about all this stuff. That's another reason why we think we're getting unanswered prayer. We're not. We're just getting answers God's way in God's time. At the end of his life, David concluded God can be trusted. He could be, he can be counted on. In fact, I want to show you how this master of words 
figuratively speaking, showed us just how attentive God is to the prayers of his kids. Look at verse 8 and on. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire. Does God have nostrils? No, he does not. That's how, he's incorporeal. He has no body. He took on body, a body, flesh, in the form of Jesus for a spell. But God is spirit. He's incorporeal. So this language is figurative language. Uh, David, a great writer, a songwriter, is calling upon figurative language to show us, oh, don't doubt God's response. Look at this. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. You think God delays in answering your prayer? No way. He rode on a cherub. And flew. Does God literally do that? No, he doesn't need to ride on an angel. This is just a metaphorical language. So you think God is delaying? No way. Look how quickly he heard your prayer. He rode on a cherub and flew. He appeared on the wings of the wind. He's not stuck in any traffic jam. He hears your prayers right away. And he made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of, his, of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. You know what David is saying? At the end of my life, I'm telling you, God was never late. I know we think so. So the two questions which we ask all the time, if not literally, then in our hearts, why and how long? Those are the two questions. At the end of his life, David concludes, why? Because he loves me and he knows what's best. How long? Not one second later than necessary to produce in me what God wants. Now, you see what David talks about here? He sent from an eye. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. No, he didn't. <laughs> David didn't experience those things. What's he talking about? So bear with me. I think David is saying, I experienced the deliverance of God on many occasions. And the same God who has at his disposal all resources and who therefore has delivered others in these ways, though different than mine, it's the same gracious deliverer. He's putting it all in one package. The deliverer can do all these things. I didn't specifically experience each one of these means of deliverance. God has delivered me in a way that fit me. But any time one of God's kids has been delivered, it's all attributable to the same deliverer. So let me make this point. Be very careful about putting God in a box with reference to how he's going to deliver you. I'll illustrate. Let's say someone has cancer. Sometimes God delivers that person through direct, miraculous, supernatural Healing. I hope you believe he does. He does. He can. We should pray that for people's healing. No question. Absolutely. 
someone else gets a cancer diagnosis and utters the same prayer for physical healing. But God chooses to deliver that person through his or her cancer, not through supernatural physical healing, but through chemotherapy and good doctors. Same deliverer, albeit through different kinds of deliverance, says. What if the first person laid some super spiritual trip on the second person and make the second person feel guilty and ashamed? I'll give, make it worse here. What about a third person who gets a cancer diagnosis? And that person prays to God too. That person has a my God relationship and accesses God the way the first two does. But God doesn't deliver that person through supernatural means, nor does God deliver that person through natural means. That person is delivered to heaven. Is that not a deliverance? (laughs) So here's my point. Be careful of TV preachers and booksellers who make it look like this is the way, if your faith is right, God's going to deliver you from whatever ails you. Sometimes they say, well, you can sow seed to my ministry. That won't hurt. Where in the world does the Bible talk about that? Sometimes they'll say to you, don't even let the thought enter into your mind that you have cancer. Deny it is even there. You know what that's called? Faith in your mind power. (laughs) David is writing at the end of his life that his faith was well put in God, not in his mind power, not in his positive thinking, not in his words, but in God's heart for his own kids. Be careful. Sometimes when a Christian who's struggled has experienced deliverance of a certain kind, they become a crusader for that specific kind of deliverance instead of for the deliverer who can deliver in manifold ways. And those people drive you crazy. They wonder why others are not getting it. Why doesn't the church preach about this? Why this? Why don't? I'll tell you what the church preaches about. God is a deliverer of his kids. Sometimes his kids, more than they need physical healing, is they need the physical affliction to enhance their dependence on him. Now, he's not saying no. He's just saying not yet. We're all getting healed. How else do you live for eternity? These bodies won't work. (laughs) These bodies are getting older. Ask Calvin. (laughs) We get new bodies. So, yeah, everyone's going to get healed in that particular sense, but sometimes what God is trying to um, cure us of more than the physical ailment is our independence from him. You know what David said? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You know what David said? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. God allowed an affliction to make David a student of the Bible. So the father sometimes is up to things in different. Anyway, therefore, I'm grateful for the deliverance God gave you. If God physically healed you of something, I want to rejoice with you and thank the deliverer. But that doesn't mean he's going to deliver everyone the same he, way he delivered you. He has all these manifold resources available to him. David is rehearsing them all and attributing all deliverance of all of God's kids to the same 
gracious deliverer, of whom he says, verse 18, he delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were too strong for me. Boy, that's a different thing than you hear today. Today, uh, you know what's really, really popular? Something we can call the human potential movement. It really has all the marks of a religion, although nobody would call it that. The human potential movement worships you, humans, (laughs) not the maker of humans, humans. And behind the human potential movement are things like uh, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. You don't want, you give that message to your kids, you can be anything you want to be. Really? What do you want to be? I want to be an NBA basketball player. The kid at full height is four foot eight. It's not happening, folks. I don't care how hard that kid tries. He can train and practice as much as someone who makes it to the NBA. He doesn't have the physical attributes. Folks, we don't have the same physical attributes. We don't have the same intellectual attributes. We don't have the same emotional makeup. We don't even have the same opportunities in life. When you factor all that in, you can't be everything you want to be. You know what a, a message, in my opinion, that's better to give your kids and grandkids? Not you can be anything you want to be. How about this? I'm praying that you would realize the full potential God has for you in light of the unique way in which he made you. That's what you do. I'm praying that you would recognize God's design uniquely in you. You're one of a kind. And I'm praying that you grow into the full realization of his potential for you. You can say that but you can be anything you want to be, that makes the kid God. That's human potential. How about this one? Uh, Whatever you set your mind on, you can have. What? What? How about this is the worst one. Believe in yourself. Don't tell me that's not a religious expression. No, don't believe in the God who made you. Believe in yourself. What? That looks like a good thing because you want to give a child a good self-concept. Why? I, 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 I want the self to die in the life of my kids and grandkids. I don't want to build up. I don't want to prop up the self. I want to prop up the Savior. I don't want it to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-centered. I want it to be Savior-centered. I don't want it to believe in themselves. Are you joking me? You believe in you? Are you? Who has lied to you? You believe in left to yourself. You are subject to unrestrained, unbridled sin. And you know it because it's come out. Even though you can fake it in here, everyone looks reasonably good. You know what your private life is like. You believe in you? You're not even the person you're supposed to be, let alone a God. That's the human potential movement. I like that David, at the end of his life, acknowledged this. Uh, He delivered me, but not because I had it together, because I believed in myself and all the rest. He delivered to me because they were too strong for me. (laughs) I'm weak. You know what the Bible says? Thou wilt not despise a broken and a contrite spirit. A person who says, oh, God, I can't. 
Oh, God, I'm not. Oh, God, I, I, I have needs. That's a broken and contrite spirit. You know what the Bible says? God abases the haughty. I can, I will, I shall. The Bible says a broken and a contrite heart that will not despise. A great military general, king of Israel says, I couldn't get where I, I got if you didn't get me there because what I faced was too strong for me. That's the attitude God values. Now, look, I, I realize we're not going to get through all 51 verses at this pace. So I'm going to pick and choose a little bit, if you don't mind. So could you look at verse 20, which I think is a very key verse. He, David again, reflecting on God, he also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Now we've got to camp out here just for a second. We have the time to do it. We've got to camp out here. Do you get that? What? Let me answer this for you. No, you don't. You cannot wrap yourself around that. God delights in me. You, 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 you cannot get that. And I'll tell you why you can't get it. You don't delight in you. You know what you're made of. You know. Sometimes you can barely live in your own skin. If there was a way to get out of your own self, you would do it. Not only do you not delight in you, you don't like you. And you have good reason for it. You're a sinner. You sin in thought, word, and deed. So that's one reason why it's hard to wrap yourself around this God delighting in you. You don't. But there's a second reason. There have been key people in your life who don't delight in you. Sometimes they have literally told you so. Some kids receive this message, I wish you were never born. You may be one who's heard that. It happens. Now, how can a parent who birthed you say something like that and you think God will delight in you? Not only that, maybe you didn't hear that direct message, but if you've been abandoned, neglected, or abused as a child by significant others in your life, you can't wrap your mind so easily around the notion that God delights in you because those significant people didn't delight in you. What about this? If you have had two parents and one suddenly died, you were young, two, three, four, five, six. Your dad died and your mom died. I'm going to tell you what a young child does. The young child takes responsible for the death of the parent, responsibility for the death of the parent. The young child says, "Ah, it's because of me, isn't it? If I was lovable enough, my dad would still be here. That's what a young child. Now, why does a child do that? That's how a child makes sense of life. Otherwise, it looks like life is random. Even a young child is trying to make sense of life. Oh, I know why this terrible thing happened. I'm terrible. Here's something else. If a child has had parents who's divorced when the child was young. Even later on in life as an adult, the child's going to think they're not together and it's because of me. If I was lovable enough, they would be together. That's what a child does. 
I'm telling you this. Uh, 40 years of counseling. I see it again and again and again. That's why this little casual statement David makes, he brought me forth because he delighted in me. You don't delight in you. You have evidence that others haven't delighted in you. God on high, how in the world can he delight in you? So what are you going to do about this? Well, you're going to have to choose who you believe. You either believe you, your perception of you, or you believe others' perceptions of you, or you believe what God has declared to be true of you. You have to choose. It's just a choice. You choose not to believe your own perception because it's really faulty. You choose not to accept the perception of others because they're just creeps like you. They're just humans. But what about the declaration of almighty God about you? You have got to go for that one. And he brought me forth into a broad place, David said, because he delighted in me. That's a fact. Now, your feelings are lagging behind. Your feelings are here, though the fact is here. You have to reckon on the fact, and then your feelings will catch up to it. I think that's why David is called a man after God's own heart. I, I wrestle with that. How could an, uh, a guy who had an affair with another guy's wife then plotted the death of her husband, David? I mean, he had literally a harem of women, concubines by the dozen. The man had a sexual addiction. Now, you tell me how this guy can be called a man after God's own heart. I think, though he acknowledged the greatness of his own sin, he acknowledged the surpassing greatness of God's grace. That was part of the my God religion. He didn't deny his sin. He wrote songs about it, confessing it. He just got to the point where he said, as horrific is my capacity to sin, far surpassing is your capacity to forgive. In fact, to delight in me. And he wrote a song about it. And that's why he's called a man after God's own heart. He believed God for what he said. He didn't believe in himself. He didn't do this. He didn't didn't believe in the words of others. He believed in God. Um, One of the big struggles in the Christian life is for us to do verse 20, to embrace verse 20. I call this the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. Some people have the audacity to say God was not gracious in the Old Testament. He grew into it in the New Testament. He was wrathful in the old, became gracious in the new. That is blasphemy. First of all, to insinuate that God is in a growth process. No, growth implies insufficiency, imperfection. God is perfect in all of his perfections. There is no growth with the essential, all-sufficient, transcendent deity who's perfect in all his ways. We grow because we are imperfect. God doesn't grow. He didn't evolve to become more gracious. Folks, verse 20 tells me that's the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. There's some people who say you ought to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. One of the country's most well-known preachers passes the second largest church in this doggone country, essentially says, offer the New Testament, not the Old Testament to people, because in the New Testament, God is better, he's different, he's gracious, he's more palatable than in the Old Testament. First of all, what New Testament writer is quoting from anything but the Old Testament? 
when Paul said all scripture is inspired by God, what scripture was he referring to? The Old Testament. When Jesus said, you don't believe me, believe Moses, he wrote about me. Moses wrote in the Old Testament. That's a crazy nutso thing. This is the gospel of grace right here. David was a creep just like you and me. Good night. David was no guy who missed choir practice. He slept with another guy's wife. He had her husband killed. He surrounded himself with a bunch of wine, women, and song, all this kind of stuff. He was a good sinner. He sinned to the max. And then realized that though he be unfaithful, God remains faithful. Where, where there was his sin, there was the surpassing greatness of God's, God's grace. He delighted him. I'll tell you why it's so important to get this right. If you realize that God takes delight in you. No, I didn't say what you do. He takes delight in you. By the way, don't you do the same thing with those who are yours? You could have a kid on the run from you. You haven't spoken to him in months. He doesn't come for Thanksgiving. Shows no respect for you, and he's living on the streets. And what's on your heart? It's broken for your son. You would do anything to get him back. You're not delighting in his lifestyle. There's just something. You're his father. It's a my son, my father kind of a thing. It just doesn't end. You're not delighting in his behaviors. You're delighting in him. You could see him coming from afar, just like the prodigal son, and you'd make a party. Well, let's give God a little credit. If you can do that, how much more heavenly father? He doesn't delight in what we do, but because of the my God relationship, he delights in whose we are. We are his kids. We are his. Now, folks, if you get this right, you'll perform better. (laughs) If you realize God delights in you no matter what, your motivation becomes not I'm afraid of him. It becomes, oh, my goodness, I'm so grateful to him. I'd rather I, I want to live a life that's pleasing to him because I don't have to. I want to. He delights in me no matter what. <gasps> that really motivates me to try to be pleasing to him. That's why it's so important to get this right. He delighted in me. Now, I'm going to pick out just one or two more things because that's the way time is. See, won't eternity be good? We'll be able to spend eternity in 2 Samuel verse twenty, uh, chapter 22. Okay, so I'm going to skip here just a little bit because I want to show you. Just a few things, if you don't mind, and then we'll go home or wherever we're going. Oh, verse 31. As for God, his way is blameless. I have to take note of this because that's the conclusion of a man advanced in years who's lived lots of life. I'll tell you why this is important. You run into rough times. We all do. And I'll tell you what we're prone to do. We're prone to get angry with God and say, what's up, God? And we're we're prone to blame God. You know what David concluded at the end of his life and he went through all kinds of stuff? He said, nope, God's blameless. <laughs> that helps me. I want to get there too. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't want to attribute blame to God. <laughs> it's not true. The stuff that comes my way is largely due to my own bad choices. It's maybe due to the sinful stuff of others who put stuff on me. It's due to Satan who kind of has some influence in the world last time I checked. But it's not, I'm not going to blame God. God's not blameworthy. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. 
David says. And then, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's, uh, how about verse 50? <laughs> We've got a few minutes. Does your verse 50 begin with the word therefore? Okay, very cool. So you know what the word therefore does? It obligates us to go into the past. I mean, no one just comes up to you. Let's say someone comes up to you later. Out of the blue, the person says, therefore. You're looking for a precedent to it. So when David uses the word therefore, it obligates him, us, to go into the past. What, what did David do? He has spent time before therefore reflecting on the entirety of his life and his experience with Almighty God. He wrote a song about it. And then he says, in light of all those reflections which I put to lyrics, therefore. Therefore what? Well, he came to a certain conclusion, and here it is. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord. That's his conclusion. You know, I, I want to I be there. As I get older... You know, I'm lying in the hospital room or wherever I am. I don't want to bite the head off of the nurse or the doctor. I would rather be a grateful person towards the end, wouldn't you? I want to die right. Not necessarily today if I had a choice. I want to. I got some more American Idol episodes I want to watch. I want to see who wins this year. <laughs> Lofty gold. But, but I, I want to. I want to have an attitude of gratitude. Older people, even Christians, get cynical, pessimistic, and bitter. Do you know that? I don't, why has God I've changed. The body changes. The organs don't work. You can't see. You can't hear. All the rest. I got all that. But why can't you be grateful? That's what, you know what David said? In light of my track record, with God's track record with me, in light of all that he's done, and he's seen me through stuff, and he's blameless, and all the rest... I'm thankful, even the, regardless of what phase of life I'm in. That's the first thing he said. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. You know what that means? Not just the Jews. He was a Jew. When he says among the nations, you know what the Hebrew word for that is? Goyim, which we translate Gentiles. You know what David said? Anyone I come in contact with, I want to call their attention to Almighty God. When that Cuban nurse comes in and I'm in the hospital and, you know, and she's speaking in broken English, ah, I want her to know how grateful I am to God. I want to share that with her. When that good Indian doctor who's taking good care of me comes in, I want to say, doctor, I'm so grateful that you're taking care of me. But who I'm really grateful for is the great physician who has healed my soul. You want to do that until you can't take another breath. Furthermore, David says in the same verse, and... I will sing praises to your name. Go out as a thankful praise offering Christian. Don't go out as a shriveled up, embittered whatever. You know, when my mother was in the hospital and she was dying, I was out there and uh, I took a break and I was outside her room. I was sitting in the chair there and uh, one doctor was coming out and another doctor was coming in, and the doctor who was coming out said, uh, hey, I just want you to know, if you go in there the way you are, you may come out a Christian. <laughs> That's what he said. I overheard this. My mother lived to be 100 years and one month. She was a witnessing machine. She believed that people were coming in there to take care of her, sort of, but God left her around to take care of them. She knew where she was going. She couldn't wait. 
fact, she used to say, I think the good Lord has made us with too many parts. <laughs> they were just breaking down one at a time. She was ready to go. But until she could take her last, last breath, she was expressing gratitude to Almighty God, to folks. See where she says, I'll sing praises. Bear me with me with this. I think I'm right. You can pray privately, but you, can't, you have to praise publicly. Praise is different than prayer. Praise, if you read the Psalms, when David is praising God, it's always in the congregation. Praise is to shine a light on God, is to call people's attention to God. You don't do that privately. David, David, David is saying, I'm, I'm going to publicly publicize the perfections of Almighty God. I'm going to sing his praises until I don't have any breath anymore. By the way, that's one reason we have to come to church, even if we don't like each other. We've got to praise God in the sanctuary. I mean, you can't praise him in song and spoken word and in the hall unless you're in company with others, you see. So David says, in light of all this stuff, I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to praise God. In closing verse, why am I doing all this? He's a tower of deliverance to his king. And he shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And I can't help but thinking, well, David is just a type of the ultimate descendant of David, King Jesus. So I could read this. He, almighty God, is a tower of deliverance to his king, the anointed King Jesus, and shows loving kindness to his anointed. By the way, the Hebrew word anointed is Messiah. When we say Jesus Messiah, we are saying Jesus the anointed one. To King Jesus, I'm going to substitute this, and his descendants forever. All this is true of King Jesus and his descendants. Who are, who are the descendants of King Jesus? Look around. I is. <laughs> are you? Whoever has a my God relationship through Jesus the Son is a descendant of King Jesus, meaning what we just read about is not ancient history. This is not typical of one man named David. This ought to be commonplace for everyone who has a my God relationship. This is how we ought to finish, just the way David did. So let me close with this. There's a Hebrew word named Ebenezer. You've heard about it? Ebenezer, Baptist Church, stuff like this. It's actually two words in Hebrew, Eben Etzer. It means rock of help or stone of help. Where did it come from? Samuel, somewhere in the Old Testament, used the term, and he established a stone, a rock as a monument to call people's attention to how God had been helpful. And so uh, I take this word, Ebenezer, Ebenezer stone, and in my mind, I move it each day further. So, for instance, um, yesterday, was yesterday the ninth. Okay, so I can tell you, uh, no, how about this? Today's the 10th. I can tell you this. As of the 10th of March, Ebenezer, God has been my rock of help. How else did I get to March 10th? What year is this, 2000-something? I mean, what's the explanation? It's not because I believe in myself. (laughs) Not because I can overcome by putting my mind. Are you kidding me? I can't take the next breath of air if God doesn't supply it. What are you talking about? But I can say, Ebenezer, the, the Lord has been my help. Now, this is the 10th. What about the 11th? I don't have any idea. I don't know if I'm getting the 11th. This may be it. But I can tell you, as of today, Ebenezer. 
if I get tomorrow, then I'm going to move the stone to the 11th, Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has been my help. Thus far, the Lord has been. And I think David did that every step of his life. You can be, if God gives you 60 or 70, 80, whatever it is. If you're following what happened with David, it ought to be typical of you. You can say, Ebenezer, the Lord has been my help. This is what happens to the king. This is what happens to descendants of the king. This is what happens to those who have a my God relationship. The Lord is my God and my rock. That's what David said. He said, my fortress, my Masada, my deliverer, my refuge, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. When you have that my God relationship, (laughs) what we just read about is true of you. God got us off to a good start. Let's finish well. Whenever the finish may be, who knows? It's different for everyone because God delivers us in different ways from stuff. Some he delivers through it. Some he delivers out of it by taking us home. By the way, is that an option to be dreaded? I don't know if I want to fight so much to stay alive. I mean, when it's time, it's time. Good night. I know where I'm going. If you don't have this my God relationship, I'd sure like to talk with you privately. I'd just like to talk, explore some things with you because you could. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. Thank you for your grace. If you're gracious, it means you are at all times because you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Therefore, as you were with David, a consummate sinner, so you are with us. If David found grace greater than all his sin, why can't we? If David was determined you delivered him because you delight in him, why not we? It's the same. You're the same. And I pray, oh God, we would be motivated to obey you and do that which is pleasing to you, not because it's a have to, but because it's a want to. Why wouldn't we want to do what's pleasing to you since you delight in us in spite of us? Thank you, O oh God, for the gospel of grace. And we pray, O oh God, that every day of our lives might be characterized by an awareness of your faithfulness to us so that at the end we remain grateful and ready to sing your praises. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. See you next time. Listen, I want you to know we're getting out early.